Greetings, everybody. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors from Highlands, and usually I'm out at the Western campus, and I have the joy of bringing God's word to you this morning. We're going to continue our series in Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs 14, verse 12 today, but please join me now as we go ahead and open with prayer. Father, I want to come to you right now asking for your help that as we, as I speak about these things and as we think about these things, we pray that your spirit would inform our hearts from your word, that that would be primary, um, that we would not rely on ourselves in these kinds of things. So just asking for your help this morning and thank you for what you will do. Continue to transform each of us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a story about a poor little guy named Johnny. Uh, I feel bad for Johnny. He and, his, he and his brother were out in the yard swinging on a swing, and, and the older brother was pushing Johnny, and, and they were having a good time until the older brother pushed a little too hard, and Johnny lost his grip on the swing, and he went flying through the air, and he landed at a very awkward angle. Not only did he land awkwardly, but his brother saw Johnny's arm, and Johnny's arm was doing something that arms aren't supposed to do. It did not look good. And Johnny's brother freaks out, and he runs to the house, and he's, he's hyperventilating, and, and, and he's hysterical, and he's saying, Mom, Dad, you got to come out. you got to come out and check on Johnny. He's hurt. So Mom and Dad come out, and they're moving across the yard at a pretty good pace, and, uh, and they observe that Johnny is very calm. Johnny's just lying on the ground. As they get closer, they see his lips moving. And as they get still closer, they hear Johnny saying this over and over again. So glad my daddy's a doctor. So glad my daddy's a doctor. I'm so glad my daddy's a doctor. I'm so glad my daddy's a doctor. Well, his dad was a doctor, but his PhD was in history. So it didn't really help Johnny very much. But Johnny believed that was true. And as we think about that, we're going to dig into our, our scripture right away this morning. It's Proverbs 14, verse 12, which says this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right. Johnny, Johnny believed something was right that wasn't really right. It seemed right, though, but in the end, it didn't help him. But this is even more dire. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And as we think about that, we see this as God's mercy. God's not a killjoy. He's giving us something merciful, a warning here, there are things that seem right that really aren't. And, and if you stay with them, they lead to death. And there's a danger in that. And I'm, I'm thinking that, that our culture, however, doesn't see it quite that way. Our culture, I think, is, is pretty big on learning to trust ourselves. I googled, why is it important to trusting yourself? And the first thing that came up was from healthline.com. And it says this, Trusting yourself is one of the most helpful things you can do for you in your life. It can help build your confidence, allow others to trust you more, and make the process of decision-making much easier. To trust yourself, all you need is to make a little effort, create self-love, and find the ability to look inward. Okay, that's, that's the hope that our culture is giving these days. If you can just look inside You'll find what you need. But the Bible says something completely different. 
Even in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on our own understanding. Why not? Well, the Bible makes that very clear. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, we read that the human heart is deceitful above all things. So why should we not trust ourselves? Because when we look inside, we have a heart that's full of deceit. Our heart deceives us. Our heart convinces us that something's right that isn't right. Our heart works against us. That is our nature. So why should we trust ourselves? We should not. We should be most suspicious of ourselves. And Jesus piles onto that in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. We should not trust ourselves. There's a way that seems right, but don't trust that. Don't trust what seems right. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We learn, first of all, that we are truth suppressors by nature. And what truth do we suppress? Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so men are without excuse. So there are two things that we can know about God from looking at the creation. We can... We can see his divine nature. We can see that there is a God and we can also see his eternal power. There's a God and this God is powerful. But what do we do with that truth that everybody knows? Everybody on the planet knows those things, but, but the Bible tells us that we suppress that truth. That's our bent. And the result of that is for although they knew God in verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Another reason why we don't want to look inside because our tendency is to suppress truth, to be futile in our thinking, to have darkened foolish hearts. Okay, that, that's what the Bible says. So, so we want to be very careful. That's why this warning is good. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its, but it's end is the way to death. And the death, the death we learn about too from Scripture We learn about physical death. We learn about spiritual death. When Eve and Adam ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, it seemed right. It looked good. And besides, Satan had said, you know, if if you take this, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. And they wanted to be like that. So, So it seemed right, but it led to death. That's what brought death into the world. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The wages we get for our work is a paycheck. The wages we get for our sin is death. That's what comes to us. That's what we deserve. That's what we ultimately receive. And there's a second death as well as a physical death. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay, so, so when God says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death, that is mercy. That's God's warning us, saying don't go that way. Leave that path. And as we think about this in Proverbs this morning, we see how Solomon applied this very proverb. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way to death. He applied it as he taught his own son. And we read this in Proverbs chapter 5, where Solomon speaks to his son. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Son, there's a woman, she's an adulteress, she wants to draw you in, and she's going to say really nice things to you, and, and you're going to be so tempted to buy into it. But here's what I want you to know, son. Even though her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, to the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Son, do not go there. It seems right, but it leads to death. Reinforces it again in Proverbs chapter 7. And now, O sons, verse 24, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to the grave, going down to the chambers of death. He emphasizes this to his son in terms of sexual immorality. Do not go there. Do not fall in love with the adulterous woman or listen to her words. And that's for us as well. Do not pursue sexual immorality. And even in a larger sense in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is essentially teaching his sons, you know, there are two women you can follow. There's Lady Wisdom. If you follow her, she'll take you to life. Or there's Lady Foolishness. If you go her way, it leads to death. So as we think about this proverb this morning, March 14th, 2021, how do we think about it in regards to our culture today? Well, I think about this. Our culture today believes that if, if it feels natural, you should really pursue it. If it seems right, you should go for it. And it's like our culture is cheering us on as we run on a path to death. Our culture is saying, that's all right. If that's who you are. If that feels good, you need to do it. And I want to think about applying this passage as we think about sexual immorality in our own culture today. But before I dig into it, I want to give a caveat. And the caveat is this. It's, we are all sexually broken. In one way or another, every single one of us is sexually broken. And, and the reason I say that is because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Romans, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says, You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And the people who heard that would be like, Yeah, that's the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. And the very righteous Pharisees were probably like, yeah, we would never break that command. We haven't broken it and we never will. But Jesus expanded the net further. He said, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus spread the net so wide that even the righteous Pharisees were trapped. Every single one of us is sexually broken. If the righteous Pharisees have some sexual brokenness, then every single one of us has some degree of sexual brokenness. Even if it's in our motives, there's always that. If it's in our heart, even that, we tend to be broken. So as we think about people this morning who struggle with sexual brokenness, uh, I just want to think about it as we're on the same continuum as they are. Um, we're not a separate category as someone who, who is really struggling. We all struggle with sexual brokenness. We need to think about it that way. And, uh, and there are these ways that seem right, but they lead to death. And the first one I want to talk about is cohabitation. Boyfriend and girlfriend move in and live together before marriage. And according to the Atlantic.com, in 2012, two out of three couples who got married had lived together for at least two years before they even got married. It is rampant in our culture right now. It's kind of the norm to live together as boyfriend and girlfriend before you get married. And I googled something about that. I, I googled what are the benefits of cohabitation before marriage. And the first thing that came up was from brides.com. And, and it was this, five undeniable benefits of living together before you tie the knot. Number one, you'll find out if your living habits are compatible. Number two, you'll learn to share chores and responsibilities. Number three, you'll gain insight into one another's sexual appetites. Number four, you'll get a firsthand look at your partner's spending habits. Number five, you can see what marriage will really be like. So we look at that, and it, it kind of seems right. It's like, yeah, um, and the old adage, you know, you don't buy a car unless you test drive it first. You know, why, why enter into the lifelong commitment of marriage before you test drive it? You want to know what you're getting. So it seems right, right? But it leads to death. The first thing we can say about this is that living together is, is founded on a whole different premise than marriage. It's, it's built on a whole different foundation. The foundation is we have off-ramps. You know, if this doesn't work out, we can leave. And marriage is there are no off-ramps. We are committing to one another till death do us part. So there are two very different mindsets, whether you're living together or whether you're married. And if you're living together, you're not so prone to work things out. You can make quick escapes. So it's a very unrealistic way to go about trying to figure out something such as important as marriage. But even more importantly than that is this. It's what God's word says about it. There's a way that seems right to a man, but what does God's word say? And are we going to live by what seems right to us in our own deceitful, foolish hearts, or are we going to learn to live according to God's word? What are we going to do? Hebrews 13 verse 4 says this. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So God is saying something here, right? He created sex. He created it wonderful. It's good. But he created a place for it and that's marriage. And I think about, you know, maybe this is an overused analogy, but I like it. I think about the small fire pit I have in my backyard and I love to have a fire in the fire pit and Sue and I can stay warm by the fire. On a cool evening, we can cook natural casing hot dogs. Um, we can put shrimp on the marshmallow forks and, and cook shrimp and then dip it in melted butter. 
We can cook s'mores. I mean, we can do all these wonderful things with this fire. But what if the fire gets outside the fire pit? Well, it burns our lawn and heads to the neighbor's house, heads toward our house, causes all kinds of destruction. Well, marriage is the fire pit for sex. That's what God created marriage for. One reason he created marriage. And those are the boundaries he put it in uh, between a man and a woman who are married. That's how God ordained it. That's what scripture teaches us. And the Bible also says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what's God's will? How is God sanctifying us? One way is this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Okay, it seems right, but it doesn't end well. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If we act in ways that are sexually immoral, if we don't keep sex inside the fire pit that God designed for it, then we are opposing God. And it doesn't end well. I also want to think a little bit this morning with you about a couple other issues in our culture that are very loud right now. Um, things that our culture says, hey, if it feels natural, just keep, keep pressing on with it. You're doing great. Stay with it. But these things also ultimately lead to death. Sin against God leads to death. And the two things that I want to speak about this morning in that regard are, are homosexuality and transgenderism. Both of these are really loud in our culture right now. They're loud because they're real, real struggles that people have, for one thing. Um, but I want, to, I want to share a statement from a piece of legislation that the city of Milwaukee passed back in 2018. It says, science recognizes that being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender is part of the natural spectrum of human identity and is not a disease, disorder, or illness. So what that implies on a very quick reading is that, first of all, science says this is okay. Um, and, and the other thing it says is, and there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, that's what our culture says. That's what our culture says loudly. And we are passing laws, even in Marathon County, that, that lean toward these same kinds of things. But it's, it's a slippery phrase because we hear science recognizes. Um, but science observes things over and over and, and makes conclusions based on how things happen over and over. Through the observations, we can draw conclusions that are true. For instance, um, what's going to happen if I drop my pen? Uh, I, I bet we all would say the same thing if we're being serious, right? It's going to fall to the ground. What if I drop it a second time? Same thing. It's going to happen that way over and over because that's the law of gravity that we have discovered through scientific observation. But when it comes to some of these struggles that we're talking about this morning in our sexual brokenness and sexual brokenness in our culture, um, there are people who have left behind what the world calls these identities 
human identity, such as uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and are living very full lives without that being part of their identity when it used to be. And some of the better known names maybe include like Rosaria Butterfield, Christopher Yuan, Walt Heyer. Okay, these are people who have, who have new identities. They don't place their identity there anymore. And so it's not scientific. Science is limited. And yet our culture is seeking to say that science says this, seeks to normalize things that are regarding sexual brokenness. But we need to look at what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about homosexuality for, for those among us who struggle in this area? For one thing, we want to make a distinction between same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Same-sex attraction is a category of temptation. Okay, it's not wrong to be tempted. Jesus was tempted many times. It's not wrong to be tempted. When does temptation become sin? Well, when, when we take it in and we entertain it in our minds, that's lust. Jesus talked about that back in Matthew 5. And, and then eventually acting out as well. So, so homosexual lust, homosexual behavior is, is sinful as is heterosexual lust. Heterosexual behavior outside of marriage is sinful. Okay, but as we think about it, we, we want to think about what the Bible says. And we read this in Romans chapter 1, um, verse 5 talks about how people exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So we have this problem as people. We tend to suppress the truth about God and worship things in the creation and make them number one rather than God himself. And then for this reason, the text goes on in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Because everything's topsy-turvy, because we're worshiping things in the creation rather than the creator, God gives us over to our passions. Um, we're, we're running in this direction and God restrains us, but when he gives us over, he moves his restraint and we just go full bore after the sinful passions of our heart. And they're described this way initially, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so we see here that, that the Bible talks about homosexual activity as sin. Homosexual lust is sin. Dishonorable passions. Um, and God goes on to, to say that he, he will give people up to all kinds of sins. Uh, he gave, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, and the list goes on and on. But as we think about this, um, we want God's view on it. And we empathize, though, with people who struggle with same-sex attraction and with, with issues of transgenderism and, and feeling uncomfortable in their own body. We can empathize with that. We know what that's like because think about the sins that we struggle with the most. They feel natural to us. We probably struggled with them as far back as we can remember. Okay, that's, that's why these things feel natural to people because we have these sinful hearts. Okay, our sin feels natural to us. And I, I want to think a little bit 
as well in, in regards to some of the gender identity issues that we're talking about in our culture. And uh, again, uh, this is from an article called Frequently Asked Questions About Transgender People. And, uh, and here's how our culture defines transgender these days. Some people's gender identity, their innate knowledge of who they are, is different from what was initially expected when they were born. Most of these people describe themselves as transgender. Pay attention to the language, right? Their innate knowledge. You know, they look inside and they're like, this isn't who I want to be. Well, before we go any further, again, we are on a continuum. We know what it's like to place our identity in things, in the creation, in this world. We know what it's like to fall in love with the world. We know what it's like to be dissatisfied with our own bodies. Okay, so we're on this continuum. We know what it's like to maybe want to be more buff or more beautiful or more handsome or whatever it is. Um, we wish every single one of us could probably find flaws that we don't like in our body, that we perceive as flaws, that we want different. And, and so that puts us on a continuum. We're also very prone to putting our identity in all kinds of other things. Maybe false identity in our job. Um, if I could just have this job, then I'll be good. If my kids turn out this way, then I'll be good. If I could have this type of body, I'd be good. If I could be in a different body, I'd be good. Um, if people around me would just respect me the way I want them to, I'd be good. Uh, if I could just find the romantic love I really want, I'd be good. Okay, we can put our identity all over the place in the creation. So we know what it's like to struggle with misplaced identity. But the Bible says this about how God created us. We are not the ones who determine our identity. The, the one who created us reserves that right. And we read back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is the one who assigns whether we are male or female. That's, that's what God does. We look at Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, Lord. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God is the one who put us together. God is the one who determines whether we are male or female. That does not, we do not base that on what's inside of us because what inside, what's inside of us is so skewed. Rather, it's like this, like, God, this is a story you have for me. So I want to struggle through whatever my situation is with my eyes on you, living for you. And ultimately, all these false identities that, that we can pursue do not hold a candle to what our greatest identity can be. If any of us, any one of us, will repent of our sin and turn to Christ... This becomes our identity. Looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God adopts us into his family. And what is our identity then? Our chief, core, deepest identity is that we are sons and daughters of the living God. And he will conform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. 
So the, the aim isn't to try to desire to be the other gender, the gender we're born with. That's not the aim. The aim is not to, um, for someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, to have only heterosexual desires. That's not the aim. The aim is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to find our identity in him. And then he goes to work and conforms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That's the aim. That's our deepest and most true identity. And we need to realize that we need to have compassion in this struggle. It's the kindness of God that has led us to repentance. Jesus knows this struggle too. He's been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. He is a merciful and great Savior who welcomes all who come to him. And as we speak about this morning, I want to just bring our attention to something you may be aware of. It's been in the news to a degree. Um, it's, it's being titled the Equality Act. I, don't think, I think that's kind of a misleading title. But what this bill does, it seeks to normalize homosexuality. It seeks to normalize transgenderism, things, things that we see from Scripture that are wrong, according to God's word. Um, and it also places restrictions on, on individuals and businesses and nonprofits that may see things otherwise. So we live in a country, thankfully, where we have the opportunity to elect our own leaders and to influence them to vote righteously. So there's information out of the connection point here at Highlands, or you can look it up online. Uh, Senators Tammy Baldwin, Senator Ron Johnson, um, the Equality Act has already passed through the House of Representatives. Now it's going to the Senate to be voted on. But I, wanna, I want us to think about it this way as we vote on it. Even as we think about the possibility of losing religious liberties, that's not the end of the world. There are people for millennia who don't have religious liberties. And God's gospel, the kingdom of God, goes forth anyway. We have an opportunity to vote and to influence. We want to do that, take advantage of that opportunity. But realize that even the loss of religious liberty, if that were to happen, is not the end-all, be-all. God is in control, and his church prevails even against the gates of hell. The other thing that I want us to think about is to remember, if we are calling our senators, to remember that we are people who are sexually broken. We are people who tend to misplace our identity as well. We are familiar with these things. So we want to do it with a measure of compassion for those who are really struggling and don't know a way out. They don't see a way out. They think this is natural, but we know that it's a path to death. So as we think about these things this morning, we've talked a lot about there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. As we think about that, I want us to shift gears a minute and realize that's not where we want to leave it. There is a path to life as well. Psalm 1611 says, Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's this beautiful, amazing path to life. And we learn about that path in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am that path. I am the way, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus invites us to come to him so we can be in a relationship with God forever. With a God who is merciful and gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. With that God, a God who has pleasures forevermore at his right hand. 
And Jesus extends us that invitation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened. Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, Jesus says. So he invites us. You're struggling. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever weight you're bearing, bring it to Jesus and he will take it from you. And you will have a new identity. You'll have a new identity that's described for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. When we come to Jesus, suddenly this. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. A brand new creation. That's part of our new identity. As sons and daughters of the living God, we are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. If you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, please call on him to rescue you from sin. That's what I have had to do. That's our hope. That takes us away from the path of death to the path of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've been able to look at these things this morning. We realize we live in a culture that is really encouraging us to run down whatever seems right, to run down that road full bore, yet it leads to, it leads to death. It's like running off the edge of a chasm. So help us, Lord. Help us to, to walk faithfully with you. Help, if we don't know you, help us to come to know you. And would you become our focus, our identity that's so strong that these other things that tend to allure us, that they would pass from us, that they would fade in their significance. And we pray for your help in all this. In Jesus' name, amen.